You may have noticed that I like to entitle my sermons. Uh, that is not normally done at this time by most Anglican preachers, though it was a commonplace in other centuries, but I live in other centuries. Uh, and so the title that I gave to this sermon was 13 Trumpets to God. You will see the point of that as we go along in the sermon. But I should also mention that a parishioner came up to me after the bulletin had gone to print with possibly a better title than that. And his suggestion for the sermon today was the Sermon on the Amount. This is the, this is the third sermon on uh, stewardship giving. And we're going to be looking at today's passage, but whether the 13 Trumpets or Sermon on the Amount is the better title, you can tell me after the service. The fact of the matter is that we do not see things as they are. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that we do see things as they seem to be, but we see it through an interpretive lens. This lens not hanging on our nose and ears, but in our minds, and we interpret what we see but we're often wrong in what we interpret. Or perhaps as another person put it, people do not see things as they are, they see them as they are. That is to say, people do not see things as they, the things are, but they see things as they, the people are. And I think that's true. Today's gospel story is the conclusion of a series of stories we've been looking at the last few weeks called the Temple controversies. They take place during Holy Week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Jesus has been going to the temple and engaging in conversation with just about everyone. And then last week was the last of those conversations, and now he goes to take a break. He goes and sits somewhere between the, uh, the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. I don't expect you to know your geography of the temple in ancient Jerusalem. Uh, there was the court of the Gentiles, which meant that any person on planet Earth could come and be in that court. Then there is beyond that the court of the women. These are women who are Jewish women, and this would include their sons and daughters under the age of 13. It would also include all their daughters who are older. The next court is the court of Israel. This would be those who have done their bar mitzvah, so all men who have had their bar mitzvah probably about 13 years and older. Beyond that is the holies. That's where priests go every day and offer sacrifices. And beyond that is the holy of holies. Now Jesus goes to this area between the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. Why does he go there? Well, first of all, because it's cool. I mean, it's hot in Israel, and so this is a part in, in, in Jerusalem where it's cool and comfortable. Uh, it's also a place where he is accessible to the two groups of people who have least accessibility to what's going on, women and Gentiles. And Jesus is always somebody who wants to be accessible to people who feel themselves on the outs. So there he is, but he's not doing anything, he's just sitting. He's sitting there, but this is also, we're told by the ancient historians, where the treasury was. Now specifically, the treasury consisted of 13 strong boxes, wooden boxes wrapped around with metals and locked. But above each of these, there were 13 trumpets. 
That is to say, funnels turned upside down, and you would come in and you would put your money into the trumpet. Now, I'm sorry to say that our scripture today translated it putting. The people were putting money into the treasury, and the woman put her money. It's verse 14 and verse 42. It repeats that verb. But actually, William Barclay translated it himself, translates it, they were throwing the money. And the King James, which often is your best translation here, gets it exactly right. It says the people were casting their money into it. Now, why were they casting their money into it? I mean, it's in funnel. You cast it into it, and it all goes down into And there were four areas we know at least that they were concerned about. They were concerned about building maintenance, priestly salary, lay people's salary, and uh, the cost of the sacrifices. Our finance committee is getting ready to look at our budget, and they're going to think about salaries and building maintenance and supplies and money for wine and bread and all the rest. That's what people do planning. They had it here. And perhaps you could choose, we want to give money to the building maintenance, and we want to give the salary for the priests and the salary for the lay people, the people who sing and blow the trumpets, or building maintenance. They would cast their money into it. But here's the cool thing. There were no checks made out of paper. There was no paper money. It was all metal money. And so when you put your money in it and threw it, you threw it into a metal funnel, and what happened? It made a noise. And if you put a lot of money into it, it made a lot of noise. And maybe you wanted to change your big coins down to little coins so you could make a lot of, lot of, lot of noise. And people would look over and say, oh my goodness, he must be loaded, or he must be really devout as they throw their money in. And Jesus was sitting there. Three times a year this was especially done, and one of them was the Passover. And yes, this is during the time of Passover. The size of the city would sometimes increase by 250%. Think about that as growth. 250%. And so the temple is packed. This is like the mall on Christmas Eve. Everybody is there. But clink, clink, clink goes the money. But then something happens. A woman comes up. We're told she's a woman. She's told, we're told she's a patokos woman. There's two words for poor in the Greek. And the word patokos means destitute. Not simply poor, but destitute poor. And she threw two coins in there. It was called a lepta. Uh, one of them was a leptone. It's a coin, think about this, slightly smaller than a dime, made out of copper. And added together, those two coins does not equal what a modern-day penny is worth. And this woman threw in, cast in her two coins. What kind of sound do you think that made? Made no sound. And nobody noticed, except one person who did notice. It was the Lord Jesus who was sitting there. I don't know how he knew this, but he was watching her. And he calls over his disciples. They're taking a break too. And he points the lady out and he says, do you see this woman? She gave more 
then all these rich guys over here who were making the big fuss and getting all the attention, she gave more than they did because they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty all that she had. So let's think about the amount that is being given. J.C. Ryle said, by human calculation, what this widow gave was insignificant. Measured by the divine standard, here, her contribution was priceless. You see, God uses a different way of calculating how much was given. For the finance committee, a dollar equals a doctor, dollar equals a dollar. But in God's eyes, what this woman gave with her little two pennies was more than all these other people gave along the line. So I want to share with you two principles for our stewardship thinking. If this was a good sermon, I would have three principles, but I couldn't come up with the third one, so maybe you can find that and tell me later. But here's the first principle. God keeps a different set of books than we do because he sees things differently. He looks on the cost in the heart and not the cost in the checkbook. I'm thinking of two boys who are actually my age. They were fifth or sixth grade when this happened way back in the early 60s. And they were up in Minnesota and they were trying to raise uh, two million plus dollars for an addition to a hospital. Uh, you could actually build a wing of a hospital for $2 million in those days. And these two boys, out of their Sunday school class, got those old uh, wax bottles for milk. Do you remember those? And they decorated it. And then they went door to door to door collecting coins. And they were going to turn it into their church, who would turn it in for the building of the hospital. One boy was on one side of the street, one on the other side. And one boy came up and he told the man at the door what he was doing. And the man just laughed at him. He looked at me and said, kid, you don't expect with that crummy little milk carton of yours to raise two and a half million dollars for the hospital. And the boy looked at me and said, no, sir, absolutely not. And he turned and he pointed across the street and he said, do you see that kid over there? That's Ben. He's my best friend. He's helping me. <laughs> and you know, God does that. He did it in the Old Testament reading where a little bit was given, but with God's blessing, it was enough. Or when Jesus fed the 5,000, the boy gave just a fish and some bread, but it was enough. God keeps a different set of books than we do, and it is somehow enough. My second principle is that real giving must be sacrificial. Uh, J.C. Ryle, bishop about a century and a half ago, said, the amount of the gift never matters so much as its cost to the giver. Not the size of the amount, but the size of the sacrifice. William Barclay makes the same point when he says, it may well be a sign of the decadence of the church and the failure of Christianity that gifts have to be coxed out of the church people and that often they will not give unless they get something back by way of entertainment or of goods. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, I hate going and standing in front of a congregation and saying, please, y'all give, because we got a budget and we got to fill the budget. But that's not what I'm here to do spiritually. I'm here to sell up, uh, to, to communicate a principle. And one of the things we have to realize is too many people give to church for the same reason they pay their dues to the country club. 
We had a bishop in Alabama, Furman Stow, and he developed what was called the Alabama Plan. We became the highest giving diocese in the United States of America because of Bishop Stow and his teaching. And what he said was, most people give to the church for the same reason they give to the country club. They want the greens, they want the swimming pool, they want more course, they want nicer meals. We're gonna give you better service, but you give us more money, and then we'll give you something. But that's not why we give to church. Oh, we expect to get a good sermon. We expect to get good Sunday school. We expect to get good visitation and to get good music and this and this and this. But that's not why we give. We give for the glory of God. Again, from Bishop Ryle, even from among those who give, it may be boldly asserted that the poor generally give far more in proportion to their means than the rich do. The poor give more. Now this statistic I'm going to share with you in a moment is over 15 years old, but I would be astonished if it's changed. Somebody did the research on giving to churches. They divided the people in the country into the top 25%, the next 25%, just below 50%, that 25%, and then the poorest 25%. And they did a research study of giving, and they found that people who live in the bottom fourth of giving in America give more, percentage-wise, than the people who live in the top 25%. I shared that in a sermon at the time that that statistic first came out and two businessmen came up to me and they said, well, Brad, what you need to understand, we're economists and you're not, you're a priest, what you need to understand is that when the poor person gives money from a low salary, the percentage will be bigger than the money that these people give here. And I said, well, if they got so much money, then let them give more. And they looked at me and I just realized we were not on the same page at all. So what is our guide for giving? I'm suggesting it should be sacrificial. And that's Jesus' point. Those persons who cast their money in were giving out of their wealth. This woman was giving out of her poverty. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He wrote a book entitled Letters to Malcolm. Malcolm's a made-up person, but it becomes a fictional trope by which he gets to have a conversation and the imaginary Malcolm has asked the question, so how much should I give? And Lewis writes back and says, I don't know, I can't tell you a percentage, I can't tell you amount, but, and here's his principle, is there something that you would like to do that you can't do because of your giving? Is there something that you would like to do but you can't do because of your giving? I have to confess I'm deeply influenced by the behavior of a Presbyterian church back in, I want to say, 1972 or three. Uh, this church was bulging. They eventually would go to another place and build a larger church. In our, they had three services. The minister would say halfway through the service, everybody squeeze in so we can seat more people. They're putting folding chairs in the foyer. They are packed. And they raised $700,000 at just the beginning of their building program. But then it came that year that they had these horrible earthquakes in Central America. They were supporting missionaries there. They wrote back and told the devastations. People had not even a roof over their house, let alone for worship. They didn't have it over the house of the people. And this church decided to empty its $700,000 fund in toto 
and give to the church in uh, uh, El Salvador to support those people. They gave everything. It was sacrificial. When they built their building, they had to start from scratch. I don't know where to put this, but I think a lot of you have heard that we are to tithe in the church. That gets said a lot. The official policy of our diocese and of our national church is that parishioners are asked to give 10% to the parish. The parish is asked to give 10% to the diocese. The diocese is asked to give 10% to uh, the national church and the national church gives 10% to the international community. Now that's nice, that, that works. You all can remember that and how it works. But there's nothing in the Bible to that effect. Oh, there is in the Old Testament a commandment of giving 10% to the temple, but we're New Testament Christians. We work on the basis of principles, not laws here. But I would also want to point out and say this, if the Jew gave his 10% in correspondence to what his blessings were, let me ask this question. What are the blessings that the New Testament believer has received? If the Old Testament Jew receiving the blessings he or she received was to give 10%, what blessings have we received? And in light of that, what percentage should we be giving? I leave that to you. I will mention that my wife and I, we do tithe, but we do what's sometimes called a divided tithe. We give 5% to the parish, and we give 5% to all the other ministries. We support two orphanages through World Vision. I know some of you do that as well. Uh, we support a food hunger policy. My daughter's involved in a mission called Hunger to Hope, and they did a packing about a year and a half ago and packed a 1.5 million packets to be distributed in the third world. And we support a mission who does college work in the place where I was discipled, and that's my thanksgiving for that, etc., etc. So I, I commend to you a divided tithe, 5% to the parish and 5% to, um, 5 to um, uh, other ministries along the way. But we do it humbly. We remember those 13 trumpets. We're not showing off for everyone. God sees. And that's all that matters. And God will take it. If he wants to multiply it, he will multiply it. And he will provide what is necessary. I've been living for the last 12 or 15 years in 17th century England. Uh, it's a fascinating century, a seminal in philosophy, theology, and law. There's also a civil war that went on during that time. A higher percentage of people died in their civil war than died in our American civil war. Think about that. And there's a wealthy man who lived about 20 miles from Cambridge named Thomas Raines. And Thomas Raines decided he would build a church. They said, people are burning down churches. He said, doesn't make any difference. I'm going to build a church. And he built it, and it's still there. It's smaller than this space of this church here. 50% of it is Gothic architecture, 50% Elizabethan architecture, 50% Jacobean architecture. I know that doesn't add up, but if you ever look at those churches, you'll see what I mean. It's a beautiful place. And if you go into the foyer just before you come into the church, there's a plaque about this big. And on that plaque it says, in the worst of times, when in enmity all about, men were at strife, he built 
this parish church for the glory of God. And that's why I give. And that's how I invite you to give. For the church and for the glory of God. And what God does with that is going to be his business along the way. So our first principle is that God keeps a different set of books. Our second principle is simply that real giving must be sacrificial. I close with a story that illustrates both of those points. It's about a little boy named Jim. This comes from the mid-50s, if you can imagine this. He and his sister were out on the street riding their bicycles, and a car hit the girl, broke bones, but also she had horrible bleeding. They took her to the hospital, and they tried to do the bones as best they could temporarily, but she was going to die because she didn't have enough blood. And the hospital did not have blood to give her. She had an extraordinarily rare blood type, AB negative or B negative, and no, they had no reserves. The parent with that blood type could not give because of some illness. The only person who had blood was her 12-year-old brother, Jim. So they went to Jim and they said, Jim, your sister is extremely ill and she could die. And what we would like to do, would you be willing to give blood to save your sister's life? And that sobered him. And he said, what will happen if I don't do that? He said, well, you can never say for sure, but probably, yes, you will die. And he was very solemn for a moment. And then he said, okay, I'll give my blood. So they rushed in, they got him on a gurney, they put the bag up there, they inserted the needle, they began to extract the blood. The second they were finished, they rushed the blood off to the girl. The parents were in her, with her, knowing that at any moment she could go into coma and died. Jim was left alone, they had finished with him, he was all by himself in this room. Then a nurse thought to go in and check to see how he was, and he was sitting there on the gurney by himself, and she said, I want you to know, we think your sister's going to make it. She's going to live. Thank you for what you did. Well, he said, good. And then he said, so when does it happen? And the nurse says, when does what happen? He said, you know, when do I croak? And he says, croak? Yes, I gave my blood. And everybody knows if you don't have any blood, you can't live. So I'm going to die. When am I going to die? He gave, not a pint of blood, he gave everything. A dollar equals a dollar equals a dollar, except in the eyes of God. And in that heart, in that hospital, a pint equals a pint equals a pint, except for that little boy who gave it all. God grant that we be like little Jim and give what we need for the glory of God and for the good of the church. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.